You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 161. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we discuss ethics in remote sensing and other activities with Dylan Davis and Nadu Rasulandrani. Let's get to it. Welcome to episode 161 of the Archaeotech Podcast. Paul, how's it going back in New York? Yeah, back home uh, after that uh, <laughs> about month out west. It was uh, it was a great experience, and uh, it's good to be back yeah. home right now. I'm just you know taking care of things, getting settled back in, and looking forward to what this new chapter of my life is going to be. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing good. Now that you're done with your first CRM project, you're officially a shovel bum because now you're just waiting to go to your next CRM project. So there you exactly, go. Congratulations. Exactly. Exactly. Looking forward to it too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we're uh, we left Nevada. We're still in the smoke, unfortunately, but we left Nevada and we were in southeastern <laughs> Washington for a few days. We found out that the Tri Cities area of Washington, where Kennewick Man was found, that's one of the cities. Mm-hmm. You know, fans of archaeology might know who Kennewick Man is. Apparently, mm-hmm. there's because of this is an actually interesting discussion because of the Missoula floods that happen pretty much every ice age. It's just these huge ice dams get built up in essentially the Rockies and. As the ice melts, when the ice dam breaks, it flooded the Columbia Plateau with minerals and water and created all these different canals and gorge systems and all kinds of stuff. And there's this one area in the Tri-Cities that apparently has this mineral-rich area called Red Mountain, and it's its own viticultural area. And there's not too many AVAs in the in the United States, but there's like 40 wineries in this one area, and the Reds are just insane. So that's where we were for the last few days. Now we're up in uh, nice. northeastern Washington. So, all right. Well, let's move on. And Paul, you found an article and contacted the um, mm-hmm. a couple of people that, that helped write this article, and that's what we're going to talk about, ethics right. and remote sensing. So let's introduce Dylan Davis and Nado Rasul Indraini. I probably said that wrong, Nado, even though I practice it, but Rasul Indraini. <laughs> How you guys doing? That was great. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I ran across on my uh, newsfeed, fizz.org, linked to an article in uh, Archaeological Perspection by a suite of, of different people. And, uh, and Dylan, who'd actually been on this podcast back in episode 86, talking about LIDAR work that he was doing in the Southeast US, was the primary author. And so I reached out to Dylan and he agreed to come on. It's a, it's a great topic. Actually, I'm glad that, Chris, that you brought up Kennewick Man because Kennewick, yeah. Kennewick Man in the, the U.S. context is really important because of how it forced us to change our laws and adapt to how we deal with descendant communities in the U.S. It couldn't just be archaeologists 
deciding that they could use human remains in that case, however they wanted, but had to bring in consultation and coordination with various Native American groups. And that relates then to the uh, this article in particular. Let's see. It's the uh, Aerial Panopticon and the Ethics of Archaeological Remote Sensing in Sacred Cultural Spaces. And it just, it tickled my fancy when I saw that because in most of our recent podcast episodes, we've brought up the issues of ethics in archaeology and ethics in digital archaeology. And there seems to be a growing consensus in our field that people have to be, people, <laughs> by archaeologists, researchers have to be thinking ethically about how they're using data, what the relationships are to local indigenous and descendant communities and so on. And that's exactly what this article tackles. So Dylan, how did you come to this topic? So this really came out of uh, several different things, but among them is my project in that, I, that I'm focusing on for my dissertation in Madagascar is where this particular research is focused. And my work, as you know, since I've been on this program before, is a lot of remote sensing focused research. And in Madagascar, I've been doing similar things, not with LIDAR, but with a lot of satellite based remote sensing. Mm -hmm. And in the course of conducting this work and then through discussions within the lab that I'm a part of, that Nadeau is, is a member of and that my advisor leads, we kind of were starting to realize that a lot of this work, you know, we have the capacity to see things in a way that may not even necessarily be welcome by many communities that we are mm -hmm. researching. There are places that are taboo, that are you know very sacred, that outsiders are not supposed to see. And yet, because of the bird's eye view we get with a lot of these technologies, some of them, especially drones, you can see everything. And that mm -hmm. can potentially invade privacy as well as violate the wishes of local communities that we are trying to work with as closely as possible and respect their wishes of them in all the other ways that we do research. But suddenly, looking at their land from thousands of miles away, we can do things without necessarily having to communicate with them at all. And we thought this is a really big problem that we really need to think more about before we do this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Let me mention real quick, Dylan, you mentioned you were on the, the program before. We should have said that at the top. You were on episode 86, and the episode title is Using Math and Maps to Find Mounds in the Southeastern U.S. So that was a pretty cool episode. We're going to link to that in the show notes for this episode. So if you want to go hear Dylan talk about that, then check it out. But I think a good analogy for people, because I've talked to people about drones, drone work and aerial stuff a lot, right? And they often just don't get some of the privacy concerns. They're like, what are you talking about? This is either prehistoric or it's blah, blah, blah. It's whatever. It's like, yeah, well, somebody's concerned about it. And I always equate it to you get your first drone, even a small one, and you're in your backyard and your backyard is fenced and you know your neighbors, everything's cool. But the minute you lift that drone over the fence and now you're looking at them with a camera, it's weird again. <laughs> like now it's just strange. And that's a, a small <laughs> yeah, example of, of that, right? But this is on a much larger scale with whole societies yeah. and civilizations. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, it's a kind of a silly uh, example of uh, of privacy, but how many news reports did you see when people started getting their own personal drones of uh, some neighbor shooting their yeah. neighbor's new drone toy out of the sky with a shotgun? Uh, it was a regular news article um, repeated <laughs> every month or yeah. two uh, for about a year, 
five, four or five years ago. Uh, and yeah, that that's personal privacy, which is certainly to be taken care of. But I, the uh, the point of this article, as I understood it, was actually not just, just personal privacy, which is definitely important, but also respecting cultural norms and bringing in you know, the point of view of the people that you're actually studying or on whose lands mm -hmm. you're, you're working. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, actually, talking about privacy code, if you are like uh, in the Western uh, culture, when you talk mm -hmm. about like uh, privacy, you talk about like, you know, your compound, your backyard, and your house, and your car, something mm -hmm. like that. But in another culture, like Madagascar, for example, where I come from, in the rural area, people are having a different way of like looking at what you own. It's not just like your house or your backyard and your car, but it's the whole landscape because everything mm -hmm. is communal, you know? Yeah. And uh, people in a village uh, don't see like uh, what you own there is not mine. Like when you go to till your, uh, you go to a farm, for example, you invite everybody to work on your farm and you don't pay them, but because they are going to invite you also like to work on your farm. So the whole landscape itself is like belonging to the community. So people are not seeing like they own a land, they own a house. They feel like they are, I mean, the, the land on them. Uh, this is a kind of like a difference between how scholars from the West see privacy thing and uh, people like in uh, a country like Madagascar, in rural Madagascar, see like what their privacy is. So uh, this, this makes uh, this article that uh, we uh, co-write with uh, Dylan like uh, really important because uh, sometimes people think like uh, it's because you're not like recording people or some someone's mm -hmm. compound, someone's house. Then you think like you're not like jeopardizing or intruding their privacy. But people think like the the whole landscape, and you can't really tell which landscape belongs to which village until you ask. Mm. So this makes uh, this paper really interesting. Yeah, and, and going off of what Nado just said, when when I was in Madagascar a few years ago con conducting fieldwork, I work with uh, a team of local Malagasy archaeologists. All of us in, in Madagascar within our lab work with uh, the Murumbay Archaeology Project team. And when we went there, when I went there to do all of my work, what I was testing was actually a remote sensing model that predicts where archaeological sites are located and where people have lived on the landscape over hundreds to thousands of years. And when we were actually going out into the field to survey, there were many instances where because we were working with the local communities, we were told like, oh, we can't actually visit that spot. It's sacred. It's off limits. We, we don't go there or at least foreigners cannot go there. And so mm -hmm. That's also kind of where I started to realize a lot of, of this stuff, which is extremely important, but you don't necessarily even notice it until you're com in communication with local communities and are really introduced to different cultural norms and practices. Because mm -hmm. if we weren't in consultation with local communities, we would have been trespassing on these sacred grounds. <laughs> but because we were 
in you know really close communication we could realize okay maybe the remote sensing found something there we shouldn't be going anywhere near it though and so yeah. this, this does and that was not even using drones that was just satellite data so you can't even necessarily see people just like Nato was saying it's not necessarily that people are being invaded on their privacy it's the landscape as a whole and how different components of that landscape hold very specific and very intimate meaning well and this reminds me of something i heard in a gis class in grad school uh called the streisand effect barbara streisand basically has a house or had a house in malibu california right on the right on the cliffs there the iconic house right there on the cliffs and they were uh, somebody was doing a report on coastal erosion and they took a whole series of photographs along the area there like really detailed photographs and basically published this in a paper on coastal erosion in an attempt to get like a baseline and then, you know, monitor erosion through time. Well, some of her lawyers or somebody found out and she tried to get it suppressed because she didn't want pictures of her house out there. Well, like probably a hundred people would have read this paper, but since she threw a fit about it, like millions of people saw it <laughs> because of her picture that her house was now published yeah. in, in the whole thing. And that's the Streisand effect just because, not just because it was published, but because a big deal was made about it. So when you're talking about exposing somebody's cultural right. assets, be they mountain ranges or even whole landscapes or whatever it is, you know, you might think, well, I'm just, you know, a lowly archeologist putting a paper out over here, but I mean, to be honest, this could get picked up. This could, you know, something could happen. And all of a sudden they're getting all this undue attention and they really need to be aware that that's a possibility, you know, from an ethical standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah. And what yeah. I'm struck with actually is what Nadeau was saying about uh, the use of land and the delineation of land. I mean, that's something that we Westerners often think of, you know, this land is, you know, owned by the state. This land is owned by this person. This land is owned yeah. by this person. Yeah. And so, yeah. and, uh, and that does not map well uh, to many, many different communities around the world. Uh, yeah. We definitely have that uh, a knowledge of that within Europeans coming to what is now the United States and you know trading things for land, which is probably a very incomplete understanding on the part of the traders of what that what they were exchanging. They were thinking they were buying plots of land, and the people with whom they were exchanging were maybe giving certain use to it at certain times, but not actual ownership of it. So um, so yeah. varied ways of looking at landscapes, I think, is really important and yeah. tough. I mean, tough without the communication that you're talking about, uh, the collaboration, really, with local indigenous descendant communities. I, I think it's, uh, it's very crucial, but I, it's very important that archaeologists are recognizing those, uh, I mean, acknowledging that there is those such kind of thing like going on in another culture, I would say. And mm -hmm. uh, if we have a kind of like way of thinking from here, because I think that's what we call like an ethic, a norm that you have followed, a rule that you have followed from a certain like a cycle, a cycle where you live, then if you just impose that rule and norms of yours, uh, from the waste to another culture somewhere where mm -hmm. they have also their own rules, they have also their own ethics, Yes. then there is a clash there, there is a conflict there. So in order to avoid such kind of conflicts, you need to a kind of like acknowledge that there is also another rule here and we need a kind of permission. And that permission, you cannot just like get from anywhere but 
from the local people themselves. All right. Well, that sounds like a good spot to take a break because we have a lot more to talk about and we're going to shift gears a little bit on the other side. So we will be back in just a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hi, welcome back to The Architect Podcast, episode number 161. Today, we're talking to Dylan Davis and Nadeau Rasulandrani. They are two of the authors on a recent article entitled The Aerial Panopticon and the Ethics of Archaeological Remote Sensing in Sacred Cultural Spaces. And uh, Nadeau, right at the end of the last mm-hmm. segment, you were talking ab- about permissions and understanding between people. And what this gets to, I think, and it certainly is highlighted in the uh, intro to the article, is this gets to power dynamics, right? This is really the the framework that this article is is discussing the ethics of, of remote sensing. Do you or Dylan want to, uh, to give our listeners a little intro to what you're thinking about this? So yeah, the framing that we kind of took with this paper was really, as the panopticon probably hints as we looked at this from the lens of basically Foucauldian power dynamics, mm-hmm. looking at the use of either satellites or aerial photography as a you know, bird's eye view into the lives of other people where you can see them and what they're doing, but they can't see you. And sometimes in some cases with satellites, for example, they're not even aware that you're watching them. Mm-hmm. And so this really, this strikes at this panopticon kind of uh, analogy, which I, it, it, it's been made before, but not very consistently in archaeological work. There's been a couple mm-hmm. of papers in the past few years that have started to point this out. And really what it kind of gets to, and I think there's actually a figure in the article that in a lot of cases, when we use these technologies, it's, you know, scholars in the Western world or just, you know, academics in general in our ivory towers that are looking at the satellite data or are flying our drone and, and analyzing our images, but completely separate in many ways from the communities that we're studying. Mm-hmm. But we were realizing, especially with what we were discussing before, is this 
can have very bad consequences if you're not really sharing what you're doing and people maybe aren't even aware they're being filmed or recorded or anything until it's too late. So what we kind of argue for in this paper is that these kinds of technologies, especially those where you can see really important things that might be considered sacred or might be private, if, if that kind of uh, disconnect exists where you're doing this work, it's important to consult with local communities. And so mm -hmm. rather than just analyzing this on your own and then going in later and asking for permission to dig or survey, we kind of argue that you should really be analyzing these you know, with permission of communities and, and looking at the fo at, at these data sets with local communities, not just apart from them until you want to do something. Mm -hmm. And so all of this kind of gets into how we frame this, this notion of power dynamics. And by shifting the focus from just us looking at other people, the academic or the archaeologist looking at, at a landscape, it's the academic and the local community looking at the data together to then study this landscape. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Dylan is right. Actually, this power dynamic is not just like something that happens recently with uh, remote sensing, which is a new technology. I mean, a, re a recent uh, technology that is like applied to a developing world like Madagascar, but it has been like happening with another field. But uh, we, at least like for other fields, like let's say just like archaeology in general, at least we have already like recognized that missing link between the scholars from, especially the scholars from uh, the West to the local community in a developing country. But uh, for this specific topic, the remote sensing in archaeology. The problem is like, because we are like, can always access to those data, whether we have a permission or not, then we tend to just like go on and uh, do our uh, research and uh, analyze whatever. But there are some like very sensitive information that you were like exposing them. And I think if you were like really uh, doing science, which is uh, like the search, uh, the, the search for knowledge for the betterment of the society, then you have to be careful because are you like uh, doing a science to just like further your career advancement or are you doing a science, but at the, at the same time you're harming the local people, unintentionally, maybe. But uh, I wouldn't, and that's the, the point of the, the paper. We are not really like blaming the remote uh, sensing archaeologists, but we are just trying to let them know that there is this kind of issue that we may have like, you know, overlooked while we are in the field or while we are doing our research. And uh, we may not really realize the impact of it, but it's a kind of like, if it's not harmful, maybe it's insidious. Like in a gradual way, it may become harmful to the uh, local people. So the point here is just like to 
encourage archaeologists, especially the remote sensing archaeologists, to think about what they're doing. Are they really doing science for, you know, search for knowledge and at the same time for the betterment of the society? Or are they uh, causing a harmful something to, to the society they're studying? I think that's fascinating that you're using the word of harm here, because I don't think I've heard that in discussions yet uh, about ethics and archaeology. And I think that even the most, oh, what, the, the worst researcher out there who's doing something just for his own aggrandizement doesn't really want to harm the community he's studying. Most people have some sort of respect or even love for the uh, for the communities that they're studying. So framing it as harm avoidance, I think, is really yeah. interesting. And uh, Dylan, yeah. you just had your hand up. So I, uh, uh, hopefully you have some more to offer on uh, on that notion. One of the things that I was going to say, going off of what Nadeau was talking about, was that in a lot of cases, the things that we talk about in this article are things that are very well established in archaeology more generally. You know, community-based approaches, making sure that you're working closely with uh, indigenous groups and descended communities. But the the piece that always seems to get left out, or at least isn't really talked about, is when we use digital techniques. So I don't think anybody these days would disagree that you shouldn't go into somebody's backyard or into somebody's homeland and just start digging up random things without talking to people or, or trespassing on, on, on different uh, property. But when you talk about it in terms of remote work, the, the implication is usually that, oh, there, there is no harm because there, you don't touch anything. It's, it's remote. You can't harm anybody or anything from looking at things from afar. But right. to, to Nadeau's point, there can be harm that's done. And, and, you know, photographs have done quite a lot of harm in many ways, whether it's you know, in surveillance, you you spy on another country or a group, and that can give you intel that can, you know, potentially help out in a war, but that obviously hurts people on the other side of that. And, you know, in, in anthropology as well and archaeology, images have been used in all sorts of ways to paint people as savages versus civilized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so even though this may not be exactly the same, it has those same potential ramifications, especially when we are doing work that potentially could perhaps implicate people in something that they are not responsible for. If we're using these big data sets to trace deforestation or some kind of major ecological event, and suddenly we've, we've, we've done all this work, we haven't talked to any local communities, and somehow our research end up, ends up pinning the blame on some local group when in reality that's not the case at all if we had bothered to ask and get their input before writing these things up this i think is how it, when you don't converse and the power dynamic is imbalanced this is how you can cause potential harm using these kinds of technologies as, even when the data is available or or even if it's not these can cause long-term effects Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think what Dylan was saying is clear. But what I want to explain is like, why is it really harmful to, mm -hmm. to the local people? We may think like, you know, some of us, because we are studying science. I, for myself, because I am uh, indigenous people, but I have already learned science, then I know like some of those things might be like considered in the was like, oh, those are just like mumbo jumbo thing. 
But those people, the, the local people themselves, they believe in those things. And all their life, since they were born, until they, are, they die, they rely on those uh, sacred places. And they're hiding some of them. And even the neighboring societies sometimes, it's not only the scholars, are not allowed to go to such, uh, some places which are considered like taboo, for example. Mm. And uh, for the neighboring communities, they think like, wow, they have the power because they have this sacred place, something like that. And they think like there's something going on there, you know. And for you, as a scholar from the West, just exposing that like, hey, there's nothing there but just forest and trees and something like that, you know, it's, it's like destroying the whole essence of the society. Like, you know, the, the values that makes the society like bond together is the one that you are hitting them. And you're telling the, the other people, like, I mean, the other people around them or the other people from uh, the West or from other area that actually that area that so-called sacred land, there's nothing really like a supernatural going on there. It's just a cheese and uh, stones and grasses. And just imagine the impacts of that to the, like, the status of the people that, that group. And so you, you are jeopardizing. You are a kind of like transgressing even, I would say, the holiness of that land. Because you're like exposing mm. them to the world that they're just like believing in a mambo jumbo something like that. And I think that's really harmful. No, that makes a lot of sense. You use the word power again. And to, uh, to wrap back to the discussion about power um, and the power dynamic between the researchers and the, uh, the local communities, one quote that I'm just going to pull out of the article that, that really jumped out to me was, uh, quote, to put more bluntly, we're implying that power must be ceded by researchers who have hitherto held it. Which I think gets to the crux of. We had Parker Van, Val Van Falkenberg on this podcast a couple of times, and once he was talking about remote sensing data that he was doing in coastal South America, and he referred to it as problematic, and that he was having to work with indigenous communities because of the God's eye view, you know, even more so than mm -hmm. the bird's eye view, which is what you've used uh, in this article. Uh, the God's eye view, which really implies uh, a lot of that that power dynamic. You know, a bird doesn't have necessarily a whole lot of power, um, <laughs> but by definition, right. a god does. Um, and so, yeah, seeding the power though is is difficult because. Especially as researchers well steeped in a Western tradition, you would think that if you cede that power to somebody else, you end up with worse research. Uh, how do you address that kind of a concern? I mean, at least from my experience is you always wind up, I think, with better research the more collaborative it is. Because when you, when you look at something from only one perspective, you're steeped in that perspective and you kind of get stuck. No one ever has all the answers. And obviously, you know, everyone is trying to become more interdisciplinary and you know, reaching across the aisle within academia where, you know, geographers and anthropologists and biologists and computer scientists are all trying to 
work on these big projects. And that's often the, the big nature and science papers that everyone talks about. But it, it goes beyond interdisciplinary in terms of within academia or within research, you know, institutions. It also has to do with in integrating uh, local perspectives, indigenous perspectives, because there's information that academics and you know Western scientists just don't have. And if you were to ask any of us, we, we will guess, but we don't know. But if you go and talk to local communities about these things, because it has to do with their, their homes, mm -hmm. they're going to have a lot of these answers that you're looking mm -hmm. for. All you really have to do is ask. So I guess going back to the initial question, it would be, I would disagree with the premise that seeding some authority back and, and having these conversations would dampen the research in any way. I think it only enhances it. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I just want to Dylan's upset. I think we need to look at what's going on like in different like uh, glasses, uh, different perspectives, like our perspectives as uh, scholars, but also what is the perspectives of the local people? Because when you are like showing to quote an educated unquote uh, people, a very sophisticated uh, devices and uh, technology like that, they will never understand like what's this, and they would like. Not, not only the, the good's eyes, but they, they would not understand like what's going on. But as long as you got the permission from the local authorities, which is the government uh, representatives, then they were just like, okay, uh, if you got that permission for a permit from uh, the, the government, then you can just like host it. But it's always important to explain to them. And I think that's the the important part of the paper. Like it's it's always important to explain to the uh, local people, like what are you going to do, and what kind of device are you going to use? What are those devices are doing? Mm. What they what those devices can do, and uh, what are you going to use those data from those devices and what is the benefits of the local people from the results of your research mm. i think those are very crucial thing to 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 settle before anything can start in the field we we got such kind of like conversation between researchers and local people you end up like being Godified, I, I I don't know if that's a word. Like you become like a god, like oh, you know, because I, I was one, I was once one of them. Then I know very well, like when we see those people from outside, especially the foreigners, when they come to our place, then we always think like oh, they're like a god-like people. They're still people, but yeah. they're god-like people, and. I think when you start to explain like what you're doing and there, there is a kind of misconception. I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of like a colonial uh, relics that we are still inheriting today. Like to show them like how different we are. 
instead mm. of like showing how similar we are, but we are just from different countries. Yeah, I, I think that's something that mm. we are missing to explain sometimes in the field. But if you acknowledge that local peoples also have knowledge, it's just different from your knowledge because what you believe is science, what they believe is whatever they believe in, in the field. But if you acknowledge like knowledge is knowledge, whether it's from the scientific society or it's from the local society, then you can have a conversation. And hmm. they can always understand what's going on. If you try to understand, uh, if you try to explain in their language, like this thing I'm, I'm doing is like this and like this. So I think the takeaway from this is like, we need to like try to converge all those knowledge. And we shouldn't, as a scientist, we shouldn't just like rely on the the source. I mean, the science part that we are learning from the university, we shouldn't just rely on the knowledge from the science that we learn from the university, but those people also, the indigenous knowledge also is a science. If we can acknowledge that, then we can make more, I mean, we can further knowledge, the knowledge of the world, something. Yeah, you both make a very compelling case for uh, for increasing the amount of knowledge that we bring to our questions, uh, increasing the number of voices to make for better research, to make for more just and equitable research too. But of course, the <laughs> we need to know where the rubber meets the road, how we actually go about doing that in the field. So why don't we take a break right now and we can address you know the practical considerations of bringing in local indigenous communities' voices in collaboration with our research uh, when we come back from the break. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to this very interesting discussion on the Architect Podcast, episode 161. This is our final segment, and since it's our final segment, we're going to wrap up this discussion. And something that has really been rattling around in my brain, and Paul kind of alluded to it at the end of the last segment as to where we're going to go, but I'm thinking if we're talking about huge like landscape studies, right? We're, we're using satellite data, satellite imagery, aerial photographs even, things like that. How do you go actually, I mean, do you guys have any advice for how you actually would go about contacting the sheer numbers of people that you might be talking about? I mean, take out a press release, put something in the newspaper if there is one. I mean, how do you even let people know 
to satisfy your, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, your ethical considerations for doing such a large study when so many people could be involved, potentially. Yeah, this is this is definitely something that uh, came up not only in our discussions, but even when the paper was being reviewed. Like, how how do you consolidate different scales of analysis and different yeah. resolutions of data? And ultimately, I think what's important to kind of remember is that this article and what we're advocating for is not a ethics is not a one size fits all issue, and there are definitely some contexts where doing this is really not possible, let alone practical. But I think it's important nonetheless to keep these kinds of things in your mind. And ultimately, even the largest of landscape scale studies, you're going to be on the ground to some degree, most likely. And I think it's important that when you are making that transition from looking at things from above to actually, you know, making specific claims or, or dealing with uh, you know, ground testing or remote sensing analysis or something like that. At that point, that's where the, the power structure has to start to shift. And so I think mm-hmm. it's not that you necessarily have to contact every single community that's on the entire you know, landmass of Asia, if that's where your <laughs> uh, study is taking place. It's, it's that, you know, yeah. let's say you are looking at, you know, there are these big, you know, the, the Amena project, uh, which covers tons of like 20 mm-hmm. different countries in the Middle East and, and Northern Africa. It, it, they actually have, uh, there were some recent papers that came out there as well, one of which is actually part of the same special issue that our article is in, talking about some yeah. of the same real problems and issues. And a lot of it really also has to do with, you know, expanding the network of, of people involved in the project in general, crowdsourcing activities, getting local communities involved just in different places with your research mm-hmm. that do manage to span continental sizes. But obviously, this is not necessarily something that can be done in every situation. And also, you know, with our study, we were we were particularly concerned because of the sacred nature of a lot of the places that we were explicitly looking at. And, you know, a lot of the work that we are doing is focused on one major area, which is probably about uh, eight to 800 to 1000 square kilometers of space. So big, but not continentally sized. So where you have more intimate knowledge of what you're of what you're looking at and the people that you're working with, I think it's important to really take these things very seriously. If you're looking at things from a much broader perspective where, you know, the impact is not necessarily at an individual level, I think there's a little bit more leeway, but nonetheless the same issues have to at least be considered before you start analyzing data, I would say. Hmm. Analyzing or collecting? (laughs) So I would say both if you are actually collecting the data, but in many instances, one of the potentially great and also terrifying things is that a lot of this data is already there. So, you know, the Landsat program has been circling the globe for 30 or 40 years, maybe more at this point. So there's decades worth of data covering almost every inch of the globe. And that's just one sat one suite of satellites. So, and that brings in a whole new dimension of this as well, because you have, you know, European and American satellites circling the globe. And now you're doing research on countries that had nothing to do with putting those up in the first place and who maybe they can access the data, but not always. Mm. Right. And some of those uh, earlier data sets are from uh, from military applications. So that brings in a whole nother mm-hmm. uh, concern. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's old spy photos. Yeah. 
So practically, if you're working on not a continental scale project, but something uh, more like your project, uh, how do you get in touch with people? Who do you bring in? Who do you ask? Chris alluded to that. You know, mm-hmm. Do you put out ads in the local paper? Hey, are you interested in this? Uh, and then what, uh, in your case, what does that uh, community engagement actually look like on the ground? Yeah, actually, it's. Uh, I think this is something like uh, very familiar to all archaeologists who are working in a, a developing country. Like, once you get to the country, you need the permission of nationally, then you go to the regional one, then you need to go to the local authority. But sometimes it depends. And I think that's what Delano is uh, trying to explain, like, there's no one size fits all in these things. And, and we are not advocating for that. Like, this is how we should do it. That's not the point here. Uh, the point here is like, for us, archaeologists, we do have our community because we have the archaeologist community and we have our own circle, which has uh, its own like ethics uh, to discover past human behaviors. And uh, we are like really sticking into that uh, principle. But uh, we should also know that when we go to another culture, they also have their own ethics because they're also having their own cycles. Without recognizing that, if you are just sticking in your archeological ethics, then you'd have a problem because you're going to clash, you're going to conflict with another ethics, and you don't want that. So we don't really have advice or suggestion for one size fits all, but I think the main takeaway here is like, when you go to anywhere in the world, outside of the Western world, then you need to like recognize like, I'm going to weave another culture. And they have their own ethics, just to recognize that. And when you are there, there is no like uh, protocols or like uh, procedures to follow. But uh, because uh, countries have different way of like doing this kind of thing. But if you are in Madagascar, for example, you have to like go to the community leader and the community leader, we would like organize a meeting. And that's when you explain to everybody, like, this is the purpose of my research. And we are going to use this, we are going to do that. And if people like accept you in that meeting, then you are good to go. So we don't really have like a, a general advice or suggestion, but that's the, the, the main thing that we want to Advocate, like just recognize that there is another culture you're going to meet somewhere. Whatever yeah, and and going off of of that, like in terms of the work that's been done in this in this region in in Madagascar, where our team works, that is literally the practice that we had. Is when we went onto the you know into into these communities and wanted to assess certain things we had seen, perhaps in satellite images, we would meet with every community leader in all of the villages that we happen to be passing through. And so this might be 15, 20 different village presidents that we would, we would go 
kind of door to door almost. And you'd explain the research. They'd get a sense of what you were trying to do. They could give you some hints on, hey, that's a really interesting project. You might also want to look over here. And so it gets people interested. It gets people involved. And it also makes sure that everyone is aware and consenting to what you are actually trying to do. So as we're wrapping up this show, guys, I just want I'm curious in your obviously the writing of this paper and discussions with other people, reviewers, things like that. Have you heard of any experiences that people had where they they did exactly this? They presented what they want to do. They said, here's what I want to research and all this stuff. And they, you know, flat out get a no from the from the cultural group, because I, I would imagine in, in, a, in a number of cases that they appreciate just being consulted on this because often in the past, archaeologists and other scientific yeah. groups have not consulted yeah. with local people. Right. So. So I mentioned there's there's a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, appreciation there when that does happen. But I would also imagine that there's times and they're like, no, we don't want this out there. We don't want you to do this research. Do you have you got any any feedback on that? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I've seen a lot of that in, in the field. Mm. Uh, and th- those are not really like the co- community, local community being reticent or reluctant. But it's yeah. because of the previous researchers that were doing bad things to them before. Like, oh, yeah. oh we've seen researchers who came here before you and they came and collect their data. We didn't benefit anything from it. Now you right. come again, uh, either you pay us or you just go home because yeah. we, are, we are just tired of you guys. Yeah, you're just like mm-hmm. from the, the city or you're just from everywhere. I don't know where are you from, but you are just coming here to bother us, you see. And I think this mm-hmm. is the, the the importance of this paper, like to explain, because it's not just for the researcher who is like uh, going to undertake, uh, who is going to conduct his research, but it's also for the researchers who, who will come after him. If you yeah. are like doing something pre- preposterous to those community, then that will stick to their mind. Like, oh, anytime we are seeing people who come here, either like archaeological study or another study, but it's from the, the from town or from abroad, then it's it's the same for them. It's just like a loss of time. It's just a waste of time. So I, I've seen that a lot, uh, Chris. Actually, I've seen that. A lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that uh, actually that sounds what you're talking about, Nato is. Uh, is very familiar from a North American context, uh, where a lot of native groups feel that anthropologists and archaeologists are just there to extract. Yes, yes, yes. And that need to change from an extractive model to a collaborative uh, community building, one where it's not to just generate knowledge for somebody to use in some Mm -hmm. abstract sense, but one Mm -hmm. that they that applies both to the local communities and to the, uh, the researchers. Yeah. Uh, but there's, but there's decades, centuries, in fact, in, uh, yeah. in our context here of, uh, of bad blood of distrust yeah. for, for very good reasons. Mm-hmm. And so getting over that seems like that's the real challenge, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, actually that, that's why I like my lab. Uh, there will be that where Dylan and I are a member of now because our, uh, lab is like not only, we go to the field and meet those people, but we start from the, the research design. When we design uh, a research, then we start to communicate with those people. Like, 
hey, uh, we are thinking that uh, we are going to do a research about this. What do you think? Do you think like we should tackle another issue or uh, do you think like you should add an, uh, another uh, issue in this kind of research question? Something like that. So we, mm-hmm. our procedure in our research in that lab is like, we start from, from the beginning until the end. We are trying to be transparent with the local community we are working with. So it's not just like the research design, but even like they're aware of the funding even, like how we get funding. It's not like you just go there and people think like, oh, those are the foreigners who have money. Uh, Can you give me some money? Can you buy me this? Can you give me a gift? Something like that. But they know exactly how much we get from the funding and uh, the spending itself and what why we are searching for those uh why are, are we doing those research mm-hmm. even the the writing itself if you look at the paper that dylan uh, and i were like and the others were writing yeah there are many local people that collaborated with us in that name in as a co-force so yeah if we are trying to do such kind of thing i think things will just change I, i'm not saying that it's going to change like in a snap of end yeah. like that but we can change things we can change things well i think that papers like this discussions like this podcast episodes where we talk about stuff like this is where that change gets made right so we we tell our colleagues we we promote these things out and we we just have the conversation. That's what uh, that that's what promotes the change. So, I want to thank our two guests, Dylan and Nadu, yeah. for coming on. And we have a lot of great links on the show notes for this episode. So go to arcpodnet.com forward slash architect forward slash one six one to see the show notes. Or in your podcast player, they're probably right there, and you can click on it and take you to a link and a paper. So, again. Dylan and Nadu, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash architect. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Fuck.